Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but sometimes, some, sometimes, well, periodically, every once in a while, what I do is I start talking about comics, movies, and TV shows so that I can talk about a certain comic book magazine from the 1990s. This is the now defunct Wizard Comics. And honestly, I mean, there are many reasons why I talk about the occasional issue of Wizard. One of which is I just really like this magazine. I like what it represent, uh, or represented. <clears throat> I like the the hype and excitement that goes into to everything. But I must, I must admit, you know, this isn't the nostalgia that I'm kind of talking around here, it's not necessarily always positive. Part of me just kind of misses a time in comic books when everything wasn't stupid and nothing matters. So, much the way that it is now, where everything is stupid and nothing matters. So, anyway, so that's that. Now, in today's adventure, I'm going to be talking about Wizard number 27. This is cover dated November of 1993, and speaking of the cover, the cover is this fold-out cover. <clears throat> it includes, or features, I should say, this really cool-looking um, Jim Lee fold-out cover featuring the Wildcats. And so, on the main part of the cover, you've got Spartan, Void, and Grifter. From there, you fold the cover, this thing will cooperate with me, you, you fold the uh, cover out, and then on the fold-out part, you've got Maul, Warblade, Voodoo, Lord Imp, or Jacob, I mean, fucking whatever, and Zealot. And this is just a really fucking cool cover, and I loved it when I was a kid, I love it even now, this just looks so awesome. And this is... In a weird kind of way, I mean, this is sort of exemplary of what the 90s was all about, where sometimes just looking at the cover of something and seeing how cool the art is, in a weird kind of way, it was almost like that was reason enough to at least pick up the comic and flip through it. Now, maybe you buy it and maybe you don't, but the cover, it, it really was meant to capture your attention, and boy, this one captured mine. So... Although, I think by this point, Wizard usually came polybagged, so I don't think it was possible to just pick up a cover, or uh, uh, pick up an issue of Wizard based on the cover, and then flip through it. You pretty much had to make a blind uh, purchase, but, I mean, I think even then, I knew that I wanted, if it was Wizard, I would probably want it, so I didn't, I didn't think I needed to preview uh, a, a, a Wizard magazine before purchasing it so if i had the money for it i bought it if not i didn't so there you go now <clears throat> um wizard had been going for quite some time by this point <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> and so there were basically they'd worked a lot of the kinks out of the entire idea of publishing a magazine on a monthly basis they by this point 
you know, you, you look at like really early issues of of Wizard, and it, and it's pretty clear that the the production team they had a long way to go, you know. But by right around the time you start getting into the mid twenties, they I think the production team had pretty much figured out what they were up to, and so they they knew how they knew how to make a monthly magazine so uh yeah anyway so getting right into it here <clears throat> this is uh, page 11 uh this is an this is a, a I almost said email this is a letter that came in uh this section is magic words page 11 this is a letter uh that that was published in the letter column for wizard and this was something that hit me right where I lived, because as I've, I, I think I've said this like zillions of times now, but at the time that I was really starting to get serious about collecting comics beginning in the sixth grade and just going, going forward from there, <clears throat> it was really hard to get to a comic book shop on any kind of uh, regular basis. And so I'd begun examining alternatives, right? Now, one alternative I'd sort of experimented with, like a little bit, was uh, subscriptions to uh, DC Comics. And for those of you who remember a time when DC would offer subscriptions, I think you probably, you can probably relate to me a little bit whenever I say that it was less than, it was less than ideal, <clears throat> Way less than ideal, in fact, those uh, DC subscriptions. So I started thinking about, well, okay, fine, so I can't do that. What else might be a possibility here, right? So this letter writer, his name is Christopher Jackson. He's throwing some, some ideas out here about the concept of mail order. And I'm going to circle back to that in just a minute. But anyway... Uh, he writes, Dear Wizard, in your recent response to a letter from Ryan Cook, back in Wizard number 24, it appears that you provided some pretty questionable advice and information regarding mail-order purchases of comic books. As a publication with wide readership in the industry and collecting public, I believe you have a responsibility to clarify your remarks. On to the specifics of your advice, quote-unquote, Mr. Croak was concerned that if he ordered a max number half, by mail, it might arrive damaged, and that he has heard that, quote, 90% of the time, comics come creased through the mail, unquote. Your response basically agrees with this and advises not to order books through the mail. While your advice, quote, unquote, might occasionally be useful when ordering uh, subscriptions and promotions, uh, promotions from publishers, you did not qualify your remarks to indicate any such limitation. Instead, your comments seem irresponsible as you presented what was, in fact, a blanket condemnation of the mail-order industry. You should clarify your comments to emphasize that they simply do not apply in general to mail-order dealers such as myself and hundreds of others who advertise by direct mail in various industry publications. In several years of mail-order selling, no customer has reported to me that, I, that a book I shipped was damaged in shipping. Additionally, if for any reason the buyer is not satisfied with the books purchased, most dealers will gladly refund the full purchase price if the merchandise is returned within a reasonable time, generally a week to ten days, and in the condition as shipped by the dealer. My response to Ryan Croak is that yes, 
you can safely order books from mail-order dealers and the majority of the time you will be satisfied simply take the precaution of asking the dealer how the books are shipped how they are packaged for shipping whether the order is insured and the nature of the dealer's return policy if the response uh, if the responses to these questions are satisfactory you will likely have little problem with your mail order purchase signed christopher d jackson atlas comics and collectibles burbank california and the the response to this uh, i'm not completely sure who's writing this it could be uh, the name up near the top of the letters page says doug goldstein but my memory of it is that Jim McLaughlin was the one who answered these these letters in most cases. So I don't know. But whoever, well, I can just say wizard here. Wizard responds by saying, looking back to my response to Mr. Croak's letter in wizard number 24, I see where it appears I put a blanket condemnation on all mail order services. That was never my intention. And I hope to clarify that right now. And then he goes on to clarify it and basically saying that, you know, it's like anything whenever you use a mail order service for your comics, there's a certain amount of due diligence that, that goes into that. But then once you've done it, you should be all right. Now I mentioned a little while ago that I had subscriptions uh, from publishers uh, to comics. And generally speaking, my experiences were something less than ideal. <clears throat> I eventually experimented with actual mail order uh, comics, and by and large, I did have a better experience with it. And of course, now I'm blanking on it, uh, the name of the company that I used, but they advertised in a lot of comics, and my memory of it is you would see their ads all the time in a lot of, uh, in, in a lot of ads from uh, at least DC Comics, Marvel I don't know about, but DC Comics, Published in the summer of 1993, I, I want to say it was called Entertainment This Month or something like that, <clears throat> and they they were always trying to hype up, you know, the hot comic book, you know, that that is going to be coming soon and you need to buy 15 million copies of because it's going to be hot and all that stuff. And I must tell you that they would ship those comics in like these big, thick boxes and I don't know how things work in, you know, other parts of the country, but at least at my parents' house when I was growing up, they had that kind of tiny little mailbox. And if you got something that was larger in size, then what uh, the mail guy would do is he would leave a key in your mailbox and then put whatever your oversized box is inside of one of the oversized mailboxes. And you could just get it out of there. And so that's where I remember those comics getting uh, put into. And like I say, I mean, it was just like these big, thick boxes. There's no possible way that they could fit inside of my parents' tiny little mailbox. And so as a result, you know, you didn't have to worry about uh, them getting folded over and, and, and all that stuff. And so it was, uh, it was pretty handy. You know, I don't remember... I mean, for entertainment this month, you know, all due respect to them, I don't really know a whole lot about them or their company or, for that matter, what ended up happening to them. I get the idea they're not around anymore. But my, you just look at some of the ads that they used to publish in comics, and 
they did have a little bit of a fly-by-night quality about them. <clears throat> and how should I, I'm trying to find a uh, polite way to say this. Um, not they didn't have they didn't necessarily look to be the most reputable company in the entire world. And sure enough, what what would happen is you'd order your comics, and I would imagine I imagine that they would arrive at some kind of fulfillment center or something like that. And then the fulfillment center, they would uh, package up your comics. They would, <clears throat> they put some kind of invoice in there, or it's like a, I don't know if you call that a bill of lading, but they would basically put basically a listing of everything that, that you ordered so that you can compare that to what you actually received. And I don't remember there being a discrepancy between what I ordered or what I received or uh, anything arriving in bad condition or or anything like that. But what I do remember is that very often <clears throat> these, you know, the uh, comics that I would order, they would arrive right around the same time that they were arriving on newsstands. Not necessarily always, but usually. It, you could time that to just about a week or so for most comics, right? And that seems to be the ongoing issue that has plagued me with mail order every time I've ever experimented with it. And that goes, by the way, boys and girls, straight into my adulthood, all right, where there was a point when, I forget why I did this, I, I think there was a point when there were certain comics that, I, I, I think I was about like 30 or 31 or 32 around there, and what I basically wanted to do was... I wanted to go to my LCS, and there was a method to my madness. I cannot remember it now, but my, like, the thinking that I had was I wanted to go up there and only, ba basically, I only wanted to pick up certain things, and so I figured I could do mail order for, for like, things that I don't, things that I can afford to wait for, you know, things that I don't necessarily need to get instantly. And so I would go up to my LCS, I'd get stuff like Morning Glories, I'd get stuff like The Walking Dead. Uh, let me think, what else? Um, what else was on my pull list? Uh, Daredevil. Um, I, I would go up there for whatever was going on with Amazing Spider-Man or whatever the event of the moment was. Whether it was fear itself or just, you know, whatever else was going on at the time. And then for, and so like, that was like the priority type stuff. Whereas the stuff that I simply want to get it, but I don't necessarily need to get it like right now, that was the stuff that I would, I, I, or like magazines, for example, I would get that stuff like back issue magazine and things like that. And I, I figured I can just sort of get that stuff at the mail order company's leisure i can read it at my leisure and everybody wins <clears throat> that was the original idea that i went into this with you know using a uh, hero's world and so i did i want to say that i put through something like three orders with a uh, hero's world and it it really was astounding each one was worse than the last you know uh they would arrive i mean like way late you know obviously we don't really have to compare anything to like newsstand distribution anymore. Uh, 
but it's like if we could these comics would not have arrived at the same time that they appeared on the newsstands it was more like they arrived a month after they would have appeared on the newsstands it's it was just fucking insane and so and it's and it's not until order number 3 that you realize there was ever a problem with order number 1 and so after that it's like a it's just a matter of just waiting this whole process out and until you've gotten all you you cycle through all of your orders and then you vow to yourself never again you know and boy that is exactly what happened too so anyway if any of you have ever had better experience with mail order than i have i welcome your input but i mean in the main mail order is what you do i think as an all-time last resort you know just for whatever reason you cannot get these comics. You can't go to your LCS and pick them up. Either it's because your LCS either doesn't exist or it's too far away or just fucking whatever. You know, this is truly the... And like, you you just cannot abide digital. Cannot abide digital. Then and only then would you want to go for um, mail order. But it's like pretty much those those were the stakes that I would have to that I would have to be uh, playing for to even consider going back to mail order again. So anyways, let's see, moving right along here. Okay. Yeah, no, this is actually sort of an interesting little article or letter. I should say, uh, this is a kind of an interesting little letter and it's short, a lot shorter, I should say than the last letter that I read. And I find it kind of interesting that there's no response to this. But uh, in any case, um, this was written by a wizard reader by the name of Jim Parisi. And uh, Jim says, Dear Wizard, or more appropriately, Wizard Readers, this letter is my response to all of the recent correspondence dealing with social slash political issues and values that so many wizard readers have felt the uncontrollable urge to write about. Relax. In case you haven't noticed, this is a comic book magazine, a forum for comic readers about comic books. Let's all get off our political and moral high horses and realize we are talking about a medium that primarily consists of muscle-bound men and well-endowed women who fly or have sharp utensils protruding from their appendages and wear less clothing than your average playmate. Have a values problem with wizard? Go ahead and write. Let them know. But you do, but or rather, but before you do, please reread the article in question to see if your complaint is valid. You have an opinion about premarital sex, religion, gun control, the economy? Great. Glad to know you care. But try voicing your opinions to the appropriate sources. Vote. Write your newspaper. Go to a city council meeting. Do something productive instead of cluttering up an otherwise enjoyable magazine with your banner waving. I, and I am quite sure I'm not alone here, do not read Wizard for political debate. And it's kind of weird that, look, first off, I don't know the exact phenomenon that this guy's referring to, but I do find it kind of interesting that people have been uh, complaining about politics and the like in their their comics or comic-related media. For a pretty long time now, I find that very telling indeed. 
If only people had listened. In any case, though, he actually does uh, throw out a, uh, a piece of advice that I think is, this is actually really handy, you know. Um, he, he, he goes through the usual, you know. He says, uh, uh, voice your opinions to the appropriate sources, he says. Vote, he says. Write your newspaper, he says. But he also recommends something else that I don't think gets talked about a whole lot here, guys. He says, go to a city council meeting. Now, guys, it was a... We're going, like, way back in time here, all right? But it was part of my... Um, it was part of an assignment for my government class my senior year in high school. I had to go to a Tomball city council meeting, right? And... I'm not completely sure what I expected, but basically the, the terms of the assignment were you don't necessarily need to participate, but what you do need to do is is just uh, a, a, you need to attend the meeting and you need to uh, follow the discussion on whatever issue it is that they're talking about, uh, whether there's a bill that's coming up or just fucking whatever. Follow that and basically just sum up what it is that you think is the right thing to do here, you know? So I did, went to the city council meeting, and guys, I got to tell you, I was fucking astounded, right? The amount of power that the uh, residents of Tomball had and were exercising in the middle of the city, like somebody changed their vote on something, right there in the middle of everything, just because like two or three people spoke up saying, you know, I think this is kind of bullshit. I don't think you need to vote in support of this. I think you need to vote against this. All right. And I saw a member of the city council switch their vote. That was enough to, to, to flip this instead of the bill getting passed right then and there, it died right then and there. And it was just such an eye-opening experience. Now, I'm not sure it's always going to be like that. Like, every city council meeting at every town, every time, all across the country, every place, you know. But it's like at the same time, two or three people speaking up in one city council meeting, like whatever this was, like October, November, 19... When was this? Well, I don't even remember. Whatever. The point is, it was my senior year. And... So, and like two or three people speaking up in the, uh, in the city council meeting, that was enough to change directions for this whole town, you know? A bill that would otherwise have passed failed. Now, what was that bill? Would it have been good or would it have been bad? I mean, it's been all these years. I don't even fucking remember myself. But the point of it is, this was kind of an eye-opening moment, you know? And I just couldn't help thinking if it's possible to do it once on this particular day, what's to stop you from coming back some other day and doing it again? What if everybody everywhere did something like this all across the country, you know? Because uh, my original plan for that night was probably just to stay home and watch TV or read comics or just whatever. But I didn't do that. And because of not doing that, I had one hell of a civics lesson, which I'm sure was the entire point of all of this. 
And it was, so this guy is actually offering some pretty, uh, Jim Parisi of Carrollton, Texas. He's actually offering some pretty decent advice here. So I'm not taking sides on, you know, with one party or the other here. I'm just saying, hey, you know, if you're kind of fed up with the way that things are going in your life or in your area, you could do a lot worse than go to a city council meeting and raise hell over it, you know? So anyways, moving right along here. Uh, one of the things that I really dig about Wizard is the fact that it would have these sort of spotlight sort of profile or feature interviews with uh, legendary creators like at that time or big name legends whose stars had faded like from like the 70s or 80s or something like that whose stars had faded a little bit by the 90s. And so one of the things that Wizard was really good about doing was introducing, you know, whippersnappers like me to the the legends and the greats of yesteryear, people that I wouldn't necessarily have heard about. I mean, who was, like, let's see, this thing came out in 1993. Who was one of the, actually, you know what, I don't even have to be completely rhetorical about this. You know, I was about to start asking questions about, you know, who, who some of the, you know, uh, uh, like in the comic book industry as it was in, in, uh, 1993, you know, like who were the, like, like, like the big shots. Right. And the fact is I can actually answer that, uh, straight away. All right, so who were some of the hottest writers back in uh, 1993? <clears throat> well, according to this very issue of Wizard, you had Neil Gaiman, uh, Gaiman on Sandman, uh, Peter David on Hulk, uh, Frank Miller on Daredevil, Man Without Fear, and I assume Sin City was coming soon, uh, John Byrne on Next Men, etc. Uh, then in terms of artists, you had obviously the Image Gang, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson, etc. Um, then you also had uh, Bart Sears, Joe Casada, uh, Greg Capullo, and so on and so forth, right? So, you know, and, and look, those, look those, those names I just rattled off, those, you know, those guys, they're all fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They're great, right? But there were, you know, there, there have been times, there were times when Wizard would do these uh, uh, interviews or features with the likes of, say, Jim Shooter, uh, Paul Ryan, or maybe uh, Dave Cockrum, uh, Bob Layton, so on and so forth. Like these 
names that were sort of off of my radar at the time, people that I'd never heard of. But nevertheless, they'd had some really amazing careers in comics, and these are names that you should at least be aware of. You should know what they did and why it's why it matters, why it's important. You know, like Paul Levitz on Legion, you know. You should know about that, you know, young Magnus. And so, anyway, so there you go. And as it goes for this issue, the one of the uh, things that I definitely wanted to talk about is this interview with Alan Moore. Now it's way too long to go into everything here, so I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on it too much. But this is, it, it, it's important to realize that this article and others like it were absolutely formative in helping me build a foundation of comics and what exactly this hobby that I love so much, what is it really? And who are these people really? And, 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 and what is it all about? So let's just, I'm going to just flip through this thing here and see if I can find anything that instantly jumps out at me. It's kind of juicy here. So let's see if it sounds like I'm vamping for time here a little bit, uh, that would be because I am in fact vamping for time here a little bit as I look through this magazine and I'm trying to avoid having too much dead air going on here because boy, that is just the worst to listen to. Okay, here we go. Um, yes, here we go. Uh, basically this is all in the context of Hollywood and, and making, uh, making deals and having his work adapted into film and all that stuff. Uh, Alan Moore says, <clears throat> I handed in a script and it was never made because by the time I'd gotten onto it, they'd already had, uh, three other writers and... The film was way over its deadlines and budget, and like so many other projects in Hollywood, it never got made. Although it was enjoyable, I realized it was probably enjoyable because the film never got made, because the film would have been nothing like my screenplay. This is why I turned down the offer to write the Watchmen film. I told Terry Gilliam that he shouldn't try to make a Watchmen film because it was practically unmakeable. This is why they asked me to write Robocop 2. I begged off of that, and when I was asked to do the Silver Surfer film, I said I didn't want to do it. I'm not interested in writing for films. Not because I don't think films have a lot of potential, but because of the way that, they, that the industry is, is set up. I recognize that any screenplay that I wrote would probably be handed to other writers to do rewrites because Hollywood tends to work on the assumption that if a thing had been written once, it's good, and if it has been written twice, it's very good. And if it's written three times, then it's excellent. And then he goes on from there. Now, guys, you need to understand something. These days, I don't know how many interviews Alan Moore even really consents to. But these days, he's not likely to to mention Watchmen a whole lot. Or if, or if he does, it's probably going to be to talk about some of the negative aspects of things that have gone on with Watchmen over the decades. And there is a degree to which if you ask Alan Moore in an interview about Watchmen, you're poking the bear a little bit. <clears throat> and so if you ever do an interview with Alan Moore, sooner or later, somebody's going to tell you that. 
that, you know, you maybe want to be careful how you mention Watchmen to this guy because this is a little bit of a sensitive subject for him. Well, interviews like this, they're kind of a, a nice little time capsule, right? From a time when talking to Alan Moore about anything that has anything to do with Watchmen wasn't enough to just really trigger the guy and send him off the deep end, make him lose his temper and, and all that stuff. And I get the idea that these days people, maybe they do that a little bit on purpose. I mean, I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything, but it's just, I kind of wonder about that, you know? So anyways, so let's see. I think by this time he'd started writing 1963. There's got to be something in here about 1963. Oh, okay. Yeah, here, here we go. Um, Alan Moore says, again, about 1963, he says, The idea of 1963 crystallized out of the image thing. It struck me that I could use this simple, charming superhero world that I wanted to create to strike some interesting contrasts with the image characters who are representative of what comics are now. The 1963 characters are the quintessential 1960s characters that could have come from Marvel Comics. The image characters are the quintessential uh, 1990s characters that could have come from Marvel. It struck me that it might be instructive and interesting to put the two together. That was basically the idea for the series, as much as the idea of doing a very simple, charming, fun set of superheroes. In the 1963 annual, we bring the two together. Uh, we will have that simplistic artwork on our characters and that incredibly high-tech Jim Lee rendering on the image characters, and it will look very strange. Like, the way that the image characters behave and the way that the 1963 characters behave. 1963 women next to 1993 women. That alone is a study in contrast that I think I can fill a couple of pages with. Also, the attitude towards violence. In 1963, not even the villains killed. They certainly didn't break people's backs and cripple people like Jim Valentino's Shadowhawk does regularly. Things have changed. A character like Shadowhawk would have been the foulest villain of all in the 1963 comics that we're talking about. Characters like Spawn. All of these characters. The attitude towards violence is so different. It's going to be... Uh, an interesting study in contrast. I think there are still things that I can have f uh, fun with regarding superheroes. That doesn't mean that the main thrust of my work is not always uh, is not always towards the serious stuff that I'm most passionate about. My major work at the moment is still Lost Girls and From Hell, and please God, if we ever get it back on the tracks, big numbers. But 1963 has been such a lot of fun. We're still considering the future possibilities after the 1963 annual, because some of these characters we had so much fun creating, it seems a shame to throw them away. We are not committing ourselves yet, but there might be life in 1963 beyond the annual. <clears throat> and I got to tell you, I mean, this is, you know, 1963, I don't, I, I think I've retained virtually none of that but it really is just this sort of interesting marvel pastiche you know this is i mean when when alan moore says that these are characters or these are titles that could have been published by marvel back in the 60s guys that's no idle boast i mean he locked in on what the marvel style of the 60s was and he really went a pretty long way of recreating that and you know, th that's definitely something that I that I want to talk about in some future episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. 
but I must tell you, you know, this is, uh, you know, those are some really quality comics. And the thing is, you don't necessarily get the fullness of all of, uh, of things like that if you're not following Wizard back in the 90s and keeping track of, you know, the stuff that's coming out. You might not even know that a comic book called 1963 exists, who's creating it, um, what exactly this thing is, what it's all about, the style that it's aiming for, and all that stuff. And so that was, in a weird kind of way, uh, like a service that that Wizard was offering to the public. And it's just something that I at least, you know, I personally get quite a lot out of it. So I don't know. Your actual mileage may vary, though. So... Uh, let's see, now skipping around here, or skipping ahead, really. Um, this is, uh, you know, skipping ahead, going to uh, page 84. This is a, a feature called Doomsayer, and it's basically a, a uh, an extended, well, not an extended interview, but it's a, it's an interview with uh, Dan Jurgens. And what he's primarily talking about, number one, is the miniseries that would come to be known as Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey. And he also wants to start talking about uh, Zero Hour as a reality, as a thing that is coming, and it is on the way, and this is what it is, and you know, this is like the purpose that it's meant to serve. And I gotta tell you guys, I mean, reading this for the first time when I was a kid, it was, you know, very welcome, you know, gossip, you know, it's, it, it's good scoop. Hey, there's some stuff in here about Superman and Hey, there's going to be a rematch with doomsday and it's going to be big. And I assume Superman isn't going to die this time. So there's that. And, Oh, Hey, look, there's also going to be something that's called zero hour. Geez. I don't know what that is, but this all sounds really fucking amazing and, and all that stuff. So there's that element, you know, just the excitement of it and all that stuff. But there's also a photo of Dan Jurgens right here on page 84 and I gotta tell you guys just looking at this photo it was kind of a hard thing to accept right now I'm not gonna name names all right because I don't really think that's fair to anybody but there was a uh, I had an enemy actually I think I had a couple of enemies but one in particular um, by about the time this issue came out in 1993 uh, he lived uh, just up the street from where my parents did, and this fucking guy made my life miserable. Now, as it turns out, he and I never traded punches with each other. You know, partly it's just he was just that much bigger than I was. You know, he was taller, he had uh, broader shoulders, he, uh, you know, bigger muscles and all that stuff, but it's like... It sounds like he's all intimidating and everything, but the one time I ever saw him get a get in a fight with anybody, it was with somebody who was about the same size as me. And the guy that was about the same size as me pretty well held his own, so I kind of wondered. And I still don't have an answer for this, but it's like, can I take him? You know, like if I had to. If circumstances demanded, you know, like could I handle this guy? And I ultimately, I, 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 never, I never found out, you know, I... You know, and he tried. I mean, he tried many times, but it's like every time he tried, there was always a really good reason to not do this right now, you know? And so, I don't know. So, 
And the reason I mention all of that stuff is to say that, especially right here on page 84, there's this picture of uh, Dan Jurgens. He looks just like this guy. And so it's like, you know, before this moment, Dan Jurgens was just a name on a page to me. I think this was the first, like, uh, good quality picture that I'd ever seen of Dan Jurgens before. And it's like, geez, he looks like my mortal fucking enemy. And it's like, how can I ever read this guy's comic books again? And did, but it, it's, it's just, this is one of those things that it's, it's been in the back of my mind ever since, you know, ever since the first time I set eyes on this picture of him. And like, the thing is, he actually looks, I mean, Dan Jurgens is a nice guy. But here, he really does look like a nice guy. He's just, it looks like he's at a con or something like that. And he's just sitting there, he's smiling for the camera, he looks happy and everything. He doesn't look like a jerk at all. And he certainly doesn't sound like a jerk whenever you you read these interviews. I've actually had, as long-time listeners of this show will remember, I've had the pleasure of talking to Dan Jurgens. He really is a good guy, you know? But I gotta tell you, first time I saw this picture, he looks just like my mortal enemy. And it was just, it was hard to take in. So, anyway, so like I say, the he, he talks a bit about Cyborg Superman. He talks a bit about Doomsday. And then, of course, he has to make sure that he uh, hypes up um, the uh, Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey thing. Let's see what we... Yeah, here we go. He says, When I did the Cyborg Superman story originally back in Adventures of Superman number 466 and 468, we had Hank Henshaw kind of go off into space, and I always intended to bring him back. I just never found the right place to do it. I kept saying he's going to need some room, because he's going to be big when he comes back. He's tapped into the Matrix chamber in which Superman was born. He's going to do a lot of Superman-type things. When we were putting together the Reign of the Superman storyline, the four Supermen, I wanted to do a cyborg from space type character. At that point, we didn't have any powers figured out. Nothing. Roger Stern suggested we use Hank Henshaw, which is to say the cyborg, and knowing a good idea when I see it, I said, thank you, Roger, great idea. And that's how we did it. Of course, it would logically follow, and this is something that I definitely, I've always kind of struggled with, like what exactly the deal is here, but maybe, well, come to it, I guess. He says, of course, it would logically follow, or no, the article says, um, of course, it would logically follow that Doomsday might have similar ties to a past character. This is one mystery which will remain unsolved for the time being. Uh, Jurgen says, if I come out flatly and say that Doomsday has no ties to any past Superman stories, some people might not respect that in terms of his origin, says Dan. And he just sort of goes on from there. It's implied that there's some kind of a history with uh, Henshaw and Doomsday in Superman number 78 when the cyborg Superman flies Doomsday's carcass out into space. You know, there are... There, there's internal monologue going on there that doesn't really make sense if... Henshaw and Doomsday don't have some kind of relationship to each other. And let's face it, there's also just some plain discontinuity. I mean, I've always kind of wondered what the deal was with Superman number 78, but uh, I've never gotten a straight answer on that. So, and then, you know, Jurgens goes on to say that, you know, hey, Superman's enemies, they're mostly just guys in suits. Can't we get somebody who's a brawler and an ass kicker in there? And so that's how, you know, this whole Doomsday character and Doomsday story came about. 
So, let's see here. And then he starts talking a little bit about the Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey uh, miniseries. He says, the Superman Doomsday Project is going to be a three-issue miniseries that will function on two levels. It'll have two stories at once, a backstory and current story, sort of at the same time, which will be the origin of Doomsday, as well as the rematch between Superman and Doomsday. How they kind of come full circle and how they are involved. Certainly, since I'm involved with, uh, since I'm involved with it, the linear men might poke their head in the door just once to take a peek at uh, what's going on and the reason that Doomsday was run, in, uh, run into space by the cyborg Superman, who we now know also can't be good. All this stuff is going to be revealed. And here's the thing, it really wasn't. Like, whatever connection that there is between uh, Doomsday and Henshaw, it was not revealed in Reign of the Supermen. It was not revealed in Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey. And it's like, I don't know if it's ever been revealed, just off the top of my head. So it's like, I don't... I've always been kind of curious about that. You know, like, is there a connection between the, those two? Do they have some kind of history? If so, what is it? And I don't know. So... Let's see. Surely there's got to be something here yeah, about zero hour. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, it's kind of buried near the end. And I guess that makes sense. I mean, this this issue probably would have come out in like September or October of 1993. It doesn't really make sense to give away the store when it comes to uh, zero hour since that wasn't coming until the summer of 1994. But uh, in any case, here we go. Uh, article goes on to say, That doesn't mean that he'll be confining himself to Superman-related uh, projects, though. In 1994, he'll take a stab at doing a creator-owned project for Malibu, blah, 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 as well as heading up a major project for DC called Zero Hour. Zero Hour will help clarify DC's increasingly complex continuity. Quote, I think that it is certainly no secret that DC... Uh, continuity is a mess. Part of the problem is that they did Crisis on Infinite Earths and that was supposed to take care of it. Not that Crisis didn't take care of all those things, but in the ensuing years, all the restarts of the individual characters messed things up, and I don't think that people understand how things relate, Jurgens complains. Quote, we get, uh, we get questions constantly, everybody who works at DC does, about how does an event that happened this year relate to an event that happened just two years ago? We're inconsistent over the last five to six years, never mind the past 50, and that has to get taken care of, he explains, quote, The answers have to be laid down. One of the things I admire so much about Valiant is that they created a total tapestry from day one in the Valiant universe that will practically cover everything up to the last day. They only know what happened. We know what is going to happen. Sometimes they get stories that are complex, but at the same time, since it's consistent, everyone understands. At DC, we don't have that. And we're going to address those issues in Zero Hour. It's going to affect a lot of the characters and a lot of books across the board. And did. The, you know, one of the things that people often say is that Superman was completely unaffected by Zero Hour. And I don't think I'd buy that. You know, I mean, number one, it's just kind of boring if Superman wasn't affected by Zero Hour. Number two, it just doesn't really appear to be true. You know, for example, there was no mention of Kenny Braverman prior to uh, the the Zero Hour 
or the uh, the uh, zero issues of the Superman titles. Beginning in the zero issues of the Superman titles, Kenny Braverman is now a part of Superman's history, right? So I've wondered. You know, I mean, I, I think the real, well, like the real world explanation for that is that Kenny Braverman, he was basically uh, created by the Superman creative team and whatever summit that led to uh, the Superman Zero issues. And so that's all there is to it. But I kind of like thinking, you know what? That's the boring explanation. Maybe the fun explanation is that Kenny Braverman, this is not a retcon that... Uh, he's, you know, that Superman has been published for all these years, nary a mention of Kenny Braverman. Rather, the restoration of the timeline that occurred in uh, Zero Hour, that is what created Kenny Braverman and inserted him into Clark Kent's history. And so I, I just kind of like that. And um, let me think. Uh, Batman, the main thing that I remember him being affected by when it comes to Zero Hour was... Joe Chill, there being ambiguity about Joe Chill having killed his parents, like did Joe Chill actually do it? Or maybe was it somebody else? The thinking goes that if, that, that if Batman ever catches the, the guy that killed his parents, he's got no more reason to be Batman. And I personally don't find that persuasive. But I do understand where people are coming from. I mean, to me, it doesn't Look, whether it's Joe Chill or Jack Napier or somebody else, ultimately, it's not really that person. It's not really that character that killed the Waynes. Gotham City killed the Waynes. So whether it's Joe Chill or just some nameless thug, it all works out the same in the end. And I think that's the way that Batman would view it. You know, it, it, there, there is a... There's a system of corruption, or there's just this air of evil and wickedness or something in Gotham City. That's what really killed the Waynes. The person who actually pulled the trigger is kind of incidental. It's, I, mean, I guess it's important, but it's not really that important in the big scheme of things. The fact is, it happened. The specifics beyond that are just kind of, kind of trivial. Um, let's see, so what's something else? Um, Jack Knight. Uh, Starman, obviously spun out of Zero Hour. Uh, the Legion of Superheroes, for better or for worse, got rebooted by Zero Hour. I mean, some big shit did come out of Zero Hour. You know, I don't think Zero Hour was necessarily as consequential as Crisis on Infinite Earths. I don't think anybody out there believes that. But it's like, at the same time, there, there are good aspects to, to Zero Hour. Now, Oddly enough, I've always thought that it was sort of strange that the weakest link when it comes to Zero Hour as an event, the weakest link is the Zero Hour miniseries itself. Because if you look at the the Zero Hour tie-in issues from, we'll say, like the main DC titles that were being published at the time, so stuff like um, The Flash or Green Lantern, well, not so much Green Lantern, but um, somewhat The Flash, um, Superman, Batman... Um, Green Arrow, I remember that one was really good. The the issues that tied into Zero Hour, Superboy, those were really good. The Zero Hour miniseries itself, eh, it's, I mean, it's okay. It's not bad, there's nothing wrong with it. But it's not, 
it's not like knock your socks off good or anything like that. It's just sort of there, and there's a lot of what the fuck, you know, uh, happening with that miniseries. Whereas, damn it, man, Crisis on Infinite Earths, that is one of the great comic book stories that's ever been written. You know, maybe the greatest, you know? And it's just, you know, zero hour. No, it is not on the same level as Crisis, but man, it's still... <laughs> It's, it's all right, you know, I'll say that it's, it's all right. So I guess just to stay with this Superman thing that's going on here a bit, again, I don't want to dwell too much on this either, but wizard would do occasional, uh, occasional profiles of comic book pros. And, uh, this month on page 228, the, uh, comic book pro whom they profile, this is uh, Jerry Ordway and, you know, Jerry Ordway, he's one of those guys where I hear about some of the stuff that he posts on Twitter, and this is another reason why I despise Twitter. And this is... Ugh, I don't know. But generally, that's stuff that he seems to confine to Twitter. At least back in the 90s, he knew enough to keep bullshit like his politics to himself so anyway moving right along here uh first question is first comic read answer when i was nine i read amazing spider-man number 50 where the cover says spider-man no more the cover jumped out at me as it has me now i don't own spider-man number 50 but man if i could find it at a good price i would want to own that comic book that is just so good such a good story too but man that cover i tell you so good Favorite work of your own? For Jerry Ordway in 1993, that answer should be pretty predictable for you guys. The Power of Shazam is my best stuff, but above all, my favorite is still uh, the Batman movie adaptation. It was a real artistic challenge, both time-wise and visually, trying to cover or trying to capture the faces of the actors. The one person you'd like to meet? Answer: I would love to meet Jerry Siegel and Joe uh, Joe Schuster. It would be incredibly fascinating to be in the bullpen of what came to be DC Comics. Most embarrassing moment. Answer. At the 1987 or 88 San Diego Con, Al Gordon tripped me on a dance floor. I was dancing with Carrie Spiegel and Al had tripped and fell. He grabbed me as he came down and boom. Like, that's your most embarrassing... Well, who wants to put their most embarrassing moment in print, though? So, okay. Anyway. Favorite munchie at 2 a.m. Answer. A mounds bar. It tells you how things are consistent. When I was a kid, I loved those mounds bars. And it's like, even when I was when I was a kid reading this, it's like, oh, God. Mounds? Mounds. Yeah. Disgusting. Anyway, do you have a pastime or a hobby? Answer. I like reading biographies of movie makers of the 1940s. Jeez, that's awfully specific. I like reading biographies of movie makers of the 1940s. I also read a lot of magazines where all my ideas come from. Favorite television show? Answer. Seinfeld. It cracks me up because it's so politically incorrect. And guys, I gotta tell you, Seinfeld is one of those shows that just has not aged well. Like, at all. I mean, I remember... I don't ever remember being like a gigantic Seinfeld fan, but it was... I kind of liked... I guess I, I liked some elements of it, like you see an episode of it, and it's all right, I guess, but 
I don't know. It's but it's just like the older I get, the more I realize, you know what? Fuck Seinfeld. That is It's like it's not even that it's politically incorrect. It's like this is everything that's wrong with the world. Then anyway, whatever. Uh favorite cartoon? Answer. The Simpsons. I watch it religiously and laugh. Do you have a nickname? Answer. De Ordster. When John Byrne left Fantastic Four, Al Gordon was inking it, and his nickname was De Gordster. When I stepped in to pencil it, my my name was a natural extension of that. What? Uh, who would you most like to work with? Answer. Al Williamson. He almost inked the Batman movie adaptation, and it would be interesting to work on something with him. Why do you? Why do you read Wizard? Answer. Because everybody reads it. It's required reading if you're in comics, as well as those who read them. It's a very good gauge of what's going on right now, and I could not agree more with that, actually. Or not so much like right now, but like at the time that there was such a thing as Wizard Magazine, there was such a thing as the comics industry that fucking mattered. Yeah, this, you know, this... This was mandatory reading, I would say. All right, I was just flipping through this at random, and I ended up somehow on page 142, and I'm looking at a, a picture of a comic book creator called Kat Bollinger. I have no idea who she is. I've never heard of her before. I have no memory of ever seeing this picture before, but... Wow. So let's see. Checking through my notes here. What else did I want to talk about? Oh, yeah, page 130. I'm actually kind of close to where I needed to be, so how perfect is that? So... Page 134. All right. Let's see. All right. Okay, so this is uh, page 134. This is the top 10 for October of 1993. Basically, like, the top 10 hottest comics. I think that's what it would ultimately be called. But at least for right now, it's just... They call it just the top 10. So, anyway. And the reason that I... The reason that I settled on this is, well, let's, I'll just read it. Fuck it. Um, let's see. Uh, number one on uh, the top 10. This is Daredevil number 320. And the little blurb here says, yikes, a Marvel book in the numero uno spot. We actually have to delve way back to issue number 11 to dig up the last time a book from the big M was King of the Hill. That what that book was Uncanny X-Men number 201 for all of you information freaks out there. Of all their time... And by the way, the last time a, a Marvel book hit number one in the Wizard Top 10, they say that that was in issue number 11. Guys, this is issue number 27. So it's been a pretty long time. So the little blurb goes on to say, Of all their titles, you ask, why would Daredevil be the one to lead uh, Marvel back to Ichiban? That's number one in Japanese for all you linguists out there. The current Fall from Grace storyline in Daredevil will culminate in many exciting changes for old Hornhead, including an all-new costume. Since this book is highly desirable, disappearing from store shelves on the first day of uh, release, and sports a minuscule print run, those wacky laws of supply and demand have quickly pushed its profile and price into the upper echelon of back-issue buys, where I assume it didn't stay more than six months. So, anyway, moving right along, that was number one. Number four, uh, the little this is Daredevil number 319, the blurb says, 
another Daredevil book in the top 10? Hey, something crazy is certainly going on with our normally less volatile survey. Usually there's a crop of 10 books out there each month that stand head and shoulders above the rest, making this job an easy one. Now, with some books staying, staying hot for a week or two, then slowing down quickly due to the fickle tastes of the buying public, tabulating the terrific 10 is akin to a nightmare. Enough belly aching. Back to da Daredevil. He's scheduled to get a new costume and undergo many changes, including the return of Electra at the climax of Fall from Grace. This book is the prologue to that storyline. This issue is another one of those fast-evaporating, teensy-print-run gems that seem to spice up the top ten every so often. And so what we're seeing here, this is actually some kind of passive-aggressive swipes at Marvel, where you almost get the idea that the Wizard staff, they're sort of looking down their nose at Marvel. I mean, there are DC books here in this uh, top ten. You've got Sword of Azrael, number one, Batman, number 497, Vengeance of Bane, Superman number 82. I mean, for this being 1993, nearing the end of 1993, there's not a single Image Comics book anywhere in this top 10, guys. Let that sink in. I mean, how rare is that? And, but there, you know, these uh, DC comics, whoever it is that's in charge of managing this top 10, they're not making fun of DC with the blurbs about the DC comics. They just describe what these comics are, why they're so important, etc. But man, these Marvel comics, I mean, or at least these two Daredevil comics, they're, you get the idea that whoever put this, uh, this list together, they're sort of looking down their nose at Marvel. It's like, oh, this is so beneath me. And... Maybe it's just the fact that the victim here is Daredevil, and I've always been kind of protective of Daredevil. I don't know. It's just, fuck you. Then again, I mean, Marvel, especially these days, they're just so petty and juvenile. Maybe they do need to get um, some passive aggression every once in a while. So, I don't know. Um, let's see here. Uh, this episode is starting to run a little bit long. All right, so I'm going to skip a few things that I had on my list of bullet points here. Uh, you know, there were certain things that were going on back in the 90s that they were controversial even at the time. I mean, people make fun of them now, but it's like even at the time, guys, you got to understand, this was not necessarily a a universally respected practice, right? One of which, and this is on page 30, this is a, it looks like a, I don't remember this speak up column lasting all that long, but this was something called speak up where people would talk about certain issues that were going on in comics at the time and whether these things were good or bad. And again, page 30, what, uh, what's at the whipping post here is cover gimmicks, basically enhanced covers. And let's just see... I wonder if they, I don't want to have to provide you guys with a definition of what that is myself. I want to see if I can, yeah, there's, it looks like they've kind of have definitions of that. So here we go. Um, the participants, um, it says, uh, this month, Wizard speaks to 22-year-old Brian Habing and 24-year-old Brad Habing, both of Champaign, Illinois. Uh, so that's basically who's providing all of the comments here 
uh, on this page. It says, uh, wizard, to enhance or not to enhance, the usage of cover enhancements, or gimmicks if you prefer, seems to be one of the most perennially debated issues in the industry. While the majority of comic buyers still enjoy comics with enhanced covers, there's definitely an anti-enhanced movement among fans. We've even heard of some fans who won't buy uh, enhanced covers just on principle. These two attitudes leave publishers and retailers between a rock and a hard place. So it's time to put the question to the people. Enhance it or don't? Uh, Brad says, There was a time when I thought cover gimmicks were really annoying. Why do I have to pay three times what the, what the book cost in order to get the story? After I thought about it a while and looked at the covers, I've come to feel that a cover enhancement can serve to make a comic a more approachable package. But I think there is a limit, and I think there, that sometimes the publishers go a little bit too far in passing the price on to us. They also sometimes put it on substandard material. A lot of it started with the glow-in-the-dark cover on Ghost Rider number 15. You can trace it right back to there, I think. Before that, we saw special covers on issue number ones a lot of times, and past that, not very much. <clears throat> Wizard says, What about price? Hologram covers are getting, around, getting up around three fifty dollars a crack. Foil-stamped covers are two ninety five dollars a pop. Poly-ba- uh, poly-bagged books are still pretty cheap at about two to two fifty. Is the extra extra expense uh, is the extra expense justified? Brad says, the market is really speculative right now. I think the comic companies realize that when they put a number one out with a foil embossed cover, that a lot of people who are going to pick it up <clears throat> are not going to pick up number two. <clears throat> They're just picking up number one because they think it's going to increase in price. I like to think that the comic companies want readership that continues rather than investment, but it doesn't look like that look like that is the case sometimes. Image, for instance, is a good example. They sell one issue and then don't seem to care about the rest of them. Brian says, I agree with that. I think the cost that most consumers don't think about apart from gimmicks is that first of all, the new people that would be interested in looking at uh, comics would pick up the ones with gimmick covers. A lot of times it's on a crappier title and so their first exposure to comics costs a lot of money and the book sucks and you lose them right away. A lot of stores will order extra of those books, and it will be at the expense of titles that maybe should get a little exposure. A lot of times you'll hear the term good comic, and the standard definition is that a good comic is whatever you like, but the fact is there are some comics that are better than others by almost any reasonable standard. And I don't think there is anyone who will deny that something like Sandman number 50 is better than Quasar number 50. If dealers are less educated about this and order 10 times as many copies of Quasar number 50, it will be at the expense of titles like Sandman. And ultimately, I think history has kind of spoken in terms of which which of those two titles people love more. Sandman. But anyway, <clears throat> my point in saying all of this is to say that this was something that people debated, you know, at the time. And at the time, I kind of came down on the side of um, anti-cover enhancement just because I didn't really care so much about a a comic book's uh, value necessarily. What I really what I really wanted is I just wanted to read. All right, I wanted to read a a story and just have that be the end of it. And I didn't want to have to pay extra money for these cover enhancements that at the time. I didn't uh, I didn't care about but it's like the older I get the more I realize that 
you know what? There is kind of like this kind of fun and sort of hype element of of those cover enhancements. And I mean, in particular, things like foil stamping or chromium, you know, <clears throat> basically things that would make the cover look better, you know. And <clears throat> one of the reasons that I like Cyberfrog, apart from the fact that it's just a fun comic book, is <clears throat> the chromium covers that Ethan Van Skyver makes, they just look so fucking cool, you know. Um, but this, like I say, this is something that, you know, people in the comic book industry were definitely debating, you know, even at the time, you know. And so um, one of the last things I want to talk about, this is on page 25. This is called Ego, which stands for Everyone's Got Opinions. Uh, as always, written by Todd McFarlane. <clears throat> I think this was just about the time that... Let me just get a sip off my water here. This is ridiculous. <clears throat> All right. And since I'm taking a break, I want to get a, a little bit of vapor, too. This is page 225, a column called Ego. Everyone's got opinions. And I want to say that this is just about the time that the Ego column sort of became Todd McFarlane's unofficial blog in a weird kind of way. But he basically talks, again, about all of this uh, speculation sort of hoopla. He writes, the pigs of the industry are the people that are starting uh, this gluttonous market. All the retailers out there, all the distributors. You remember when there were multiple distributors in comics? <laughs> and even the comic book companies are all concerned about this. In my opinion, most of the pigs who are coming into this business are either coming in from the outside, from the card market, or are borderline good retailers who are now getting greedy. Unfortunately, I wish I could solve all the greed in the business and in the world so we could have perfect harmony, but since I can't, we can just hope that the pigs go away. We've had six months in this business where sales got kind of crazy and everyone was buying into the hype, the speculation, foil covers, and all that. Now we're seeing almost a reversal of that and orders are going down dramatically because like any little kid, once you get your finger burnt, you overreact. I think that people are undercutting their orders, but more importantly, I'm hoping that the pigs of the business are going bankrupt right now. All of these guys have raped and pillaged the card market, got greedy, and thought they were going to buy an island off of Tahiti somewhere. Now, after they destroyed the business and left it in a crumbled state, they've jumped into our business, and the only difference is that we've been around for 35 years with independent stores and distribution, which I can't say is the same for the card market. With the sales going down and retailers getting stuck with, with the product, they're complaining every single month. Image Comics gets complaints every month from retailers calling up to return our product because they didn't do their homework and they overordered so that they could be greedy. After taking their product and being greedy about it, they found that they couldn't sell it and tried to stiff us back with it. I won't give any credit to those who are stupid or greedy. If you fit 
one of those two categories, which seems to be a lot of you, you're not getting anything. Some retailers are trying to return Spawn number 10 because it didn't have a Rob Liefeld poster as advertised. The Liefeld poster came out in Spawn number 12, so I guess it should be returnable because I didn't tell you there would be a poster in there. So no, you're not going to return Spawn number 10 because you overordered and because you got caught up in the frenzy of overordering Spawn for a few months. And don't tell me that you sell Spawn based on who draws the poster. Not when you can uh, get a regular comic drawn by that guy a few feet away from where you picked up Spawn. And honestly, he just sort of goes on from there. But basically what he's talking about here is... Actually, you know what? Before I finish... Um... There's a little bit more here that I want to read uh, from McFarlane. He says, What I'm hoping for, and I can tell you that Diamond Comic Distributors and Capital City Inc. isn't hoping for, is that these com uh, is that those million-dollar comic books uh, become a thing of the past. I'd rather... He means one million selling comic books. I'd rather have 100,000 copies of the books put out into the right hands the hands of the fans, than have a million copies of them uh, put into the wrong people's hands. Right now, there's a million books that are going into the wrong hands, and I'm hoping these hands go belly up because they don't care about the business. When they leave, and they are going to leave because when they go bankrupt, they will leave, I hope that the people who care about the business will still be standing and will be there to, care, uh, to carry on because we care. And I'm going to go ahead and Call it, a, call it a day with this article, because number one, I'm nearly finished anyway. Number two, it gets a little bit windy. Um, but the point of it is, you know, it was known, even back in 1993, that a lot of the um, huge sales and big success that a lot of comic books uh, had uh, in, in, you know, the, the comic book boom of the 90s, a lot of this stuff... This was not necessarily fans going out and buying comics. I mean, a lot of it was. A lot of it was. A lot of fans were buying a fucking shit ton of comics, okay? There's just no question about that. But at the same time, you know, a lot of this was driven by speculators, and this is something that was commonly known, that comic book sales were not necessarily made exclusively to comic book fans. Comic book sales in the 90s were made in the early 90s, they were made to comic book fans, but they, are, they were also ma made to speculators. You know, these were people who would go out, they would buy comics because they wanted to uh, basically turn around and sell all this stuff because it's the next big thing, sell this stuff at a markup and make a fucking shit ton of money. I mean, how much is up for grabs, but basically they they wanted to make a shit ton of money. And it sounds like McFarlane is going after retailers here. He's basically condemning retailers. And indeed, I think he is, because the dirty little secret of all these speculators is they're basically retailers by a different name. What do retailers want to do except order comics and then sell them to you at a profit? Speculators were basically retailers of a different kind, but nevertheless, they were retailers, you know? And so, yes, Todd McFarlane is is criticizing speculators, but he's also criticizing retail certain kinds of retailers point blank. Now, I remember buying comics in the 90s. I know, I mean, I can't speak, you know, 100% to everything, but I do know that a lot of the criticisms that he's leveled here, there is, there's a lot of validity to it. We'll say that, you know, there's a lot of, 
legitimacy to criticizing the retailers of the 1990s for some of their business practices and some of the little stunts they were trying to pull. At the end of the day, not necessarily every single retailer kept his wits about him in the middle of the comic book boom. And so he was kind of left with the retailer who let his imagination run away with him. He was sort of left in a, in a difficult position after the bust happened in the summer of 1993 that McFarlane alludes to here. I want to say it was June of June of 1993. Sounds about right. So anyway, and so these cover enhancements, I have to assume they figured into it somewhat, but in the long haul, I, I, I can defend some of these cover enhancements. I really dig, especially the foil stamped covers, the chromium covers. I just really, really love that stuff. So anyway, even now, I still really love that stuff. So let's see. One of the last things that I want to talk about here, just a few odds and ends still left. Let's see. Yes, on uh, page 102, this is a two-page ad for the little comic book that could, Gen 13, coming soon. It was uh, it lists the name Jeffrey Scott, which is J. Scott Campbell. Alex Garner, created by Jim Lee. It doesn't actually mention Brandon Choi by name, even though he's the writer and co-creator. But whatever, I mean, it was in the 90s, and so it was really the artists who got top billing on these on these things and i'm trying to figure out who drew this ad this looks like it could be very early very primitive j scott campbell but i don't know i mean it there it also looks like it could be jim lee on a kind of an off day so i don't know it's and how I don't know I mean this could go either way and anyway um and then finally you've got Palmer's picks this is on page 96 and he talks about bone and I'm aside from the fact that I'm saying that this exists you know he did write about bone this article it does exist I, I think I want to put this in my back pocket and maybe save this for some future episode of Trinus Magnus punches reality because this is, it's basically a, a, a two-page little column about Bone, what it is, what it's all about, the concept behind it, who created it, the story, all that stuff. And then there's some commentary on all this, why Tom Palmer thinks this thing is so fucking amazing. And so I, I want to put this in my back pocket, like I say, and save this. Maybe I'll do an episode about Bone at some point, and I can talk about this, this column then. But this is definitely worth checking out if you've got this issue or if you can find this issue. It's definitely worth checking out. The other thing that I'm sort of skipping for the time being, this is on page 34. Uh, title of this article is Exposing Covert Activities. And it's basically an extended interview with uh, Jim Lee where he talks, I would say, at some pretty considerable length about Wildcats and what's going on with it. I want to save this for a future issue because I, I know I'm going to be talking about Wildcats again in the future. And when I do, I want to have this, this article sort of available to me. 
this is it's let's see it doesn't look yeah actually I take it back Wildcats number five so I guess when I finally talk about Wildcats number five I'll probably talk about this article from Wizard in tandem with it um, this is just it's a really well written article Jim Lee has got some kind of interesting comments and I, I want to I just want to save this for when I can do it justice so I realize there's a lot in this issue of wizard that I'm not talking about but I hope you guys understand there is a method to my madness and um, hopefully that's gonna be good enough so so I think that's basically it as it turns out for this issue of, of wizard now getting into next week I'm seriously thinking about talking about um, uh, cyber frog amphibionics I may do it I may not it just it's up in the air I haven't really figured it out yet I'm it's I'm considering it so I'm not making any promises about what next week's episode is gonna be or for that matter if there even will be an episode next week but either way I think that's pretty much it for me for this week so bye everybody I'll see you next week or fucking whenever see ya I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. 
and that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>